This week, we're going to mix it up a bit. We're going to move away from personal care products and return to the world of food. Our guest is Jill Donaldson, founder of Lily Bean by Pastry Base, who has built an incredible business of baking kits that she has designed from home. Jill was the kid who always knew what she wanted to do when she grew up. There was no doubt that she was going to own a food business. But her story, like so many others, is filled with twists and turns that have evolved an approach to home-based production that is quite special, and, in the end, quite successful, as you can find her products not only online and in small shops, but also in larger grocery chains. We discuss some new issues in this episode that will be helpful for newer producers, including the consideration of co-packers to help produce your products, as well as the huge upside of participating in trade shows. We also get into the nitty-gritty of specialty products, such as considerations regarding allergen-free foods. This episode is somewhat longer than previous ones, but I hope you'll agree that the additional information is worth it. Hi, everyone. This is Corey Hyman, host of the Make It and Sell It podcast. This is a show about entrepreneurs who develop new products and then produce, sell, and distribute these products themselves. This field is wide open and can be a fantastic opportunity for anyone who has the passion, skills, and persistence to succeed. Why do people do it? How do they do it? What can we learn from their experiences? Stay tuned to find out if this career path may be right for you. Good morning, Jill. Good morning, Corey. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you today? I am doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. This is Jill Donaldson, who is the founder of Pastry Base, which is a baking company based in Richmond, Virginia, as I understand it. And yes, correct. this is an interview that I've been wanting to do for a very long time. This is our first in five episodes that we have gone away from personal care products. And as much as I love personal care products, I'm really excited to talk to Jill, who's a baker. One of the neat things about Jill is that different than many of us, Jill is not somebody who came to her career as an amateur. She actually studied entrepreneurship in college and developed skills as a pastry chef in a program. And so this is something it sounds like, Jill, you've wanted to do for a long time. Did you start off your career as an entrepreneur and as a baker, or did you do other things before you started down this path? I pretty much started um, along this path. I Grew up in a big Lebanese family where everything was about food and when are we eating next and what are we having for dinner. And so grew up very much being in love with with food. And my first job as a teenager in, in high school was in a little cafe in a local tourist attraction. And ever since then, I've worked in the food industry in various roles so restaurants, uh, back of house, front of house, and bakeries and catering companies and, and things like that. So it's something that I've always known I wanted to do. And like you said, my degree in entrepreneurship was something that actually I just happened upon. I started as just a business management major at the University of Miami. And while I was in the middle of my schooling, they launched this new program, the entrepreneurship program. So I was able to join the first class that graduated with that degree. And it sort of gave us a focus on sort of choosing an industry that we were interested in, which I knew mine was going to be food and hospitality and partnering us with local businesses in the area and getting to have mentorships and getting to have internships and do projects with different businesses 
which was very valuable as an experience in school. So I've always known that I wanted to own a business in in food, um, and I've always sort of worked towards that. Jill, as somebody who studied entrepreneurship, what are some of the things that those of us who come in without that academic training need to think about that we don't necessarily do as well? I think that some of the most important things that I have learned, although the schooling and the experiences they got were very valuable, were actually in real life with real businesses, real life experiences in various jobs and working with various mentors along the way. So the classes and the book learning part was great, but the relationships and the mentorships were much more valuable. So I would say that if it's possible to find someone who's doing what you want to do or in the field that you want to be in and reach out to them and see if there's any way that they're willing to talk to you or give you some experience, some real world experience, that's where the most value is, I think, in in any field, whether it's food or, or otherwise, they can help you sort of figure out things that struggles that you're going through, they've been through. So they can guide you so you don't have to sort of make the same mistakes twice. And Jill, was it through some of these relationships with mentors and people who led apprenticeships that kind of guided you toward pastries and desserts? I think that was just what I was always most interested in. So the mentorships, some of them were in the pastry world, but not all of them were. Some were just um, like fast casual restaurants, some were catering. So I gained different skills from different people and different industries, all within the food industry, but the pastry part was just my personal passion and what I sort of always knew that I wanted to spend the most time in. I'm going to butcher this, so I apologize in advance, but you studied at L'Académie du Cuisine, which yes. is <laughs> a pastry program. Is it is it a short course? Was it an extended course? How did you come to that experience, and how did that help in thinking about your future business? Yeah, and you didn't butcher it at all. That's oh, <laughs> great. great. Um, <laughs> I So before I started the program, I actually had worked in a French bakery, Florida, and had gained a lot of experience there, but sort of knew that I wanted to to hone my skills in a professional environment. Unfortunately, L'Academy de Cuisine does not exist anymore, which is very sad because it's a great institution in Maryland, right outside of DC. Just a lot of great talents have gone through that program. The particular program I did because I already had a degree and didn't think I really you know, wanted to spend the time and money on another bachelor's degree, I did a six-month patisserie program. So that was something that I could do after work on night and weekends. So it was just sort of like a crash course where every day we sort of did hours of a module that in a longer course, we may have spent much more time on. But it was just exactly what I wanted, where I was able to sort of hone my skills, um, but in a time frame that worked for me and with my schedule. Was it an attempt to prepare for being an entrepreneur and to start your own business? Or was it just one of your interests that you thought you would perhaps be a, a baker in somebody else's shop or in some other way? I think it was it was mainly to hone my skills. I knew that I wanted to own 
at that time, I thought I wanted to own a bakery. That was sort of for years what my goal was. And so I knew I would be working in other people's bakeries before I would own my own. And I had in the past, but it was mainly to sort of hone my skills and also to to be able to put something on a resume so that I could get jobs working with chefs and things like that, that I would want to work with in preparation for owning my own bakery. So you thought you were going to own your own bakery and took the course. And then how long was it after that, that you started uh, a small scale production business instead of working in a bakery? So it was probably about three years where I worked in various kitchens. I started sort of gathering and crafting recipes that I wanted to feature, sort of narrowing down what types of products I wanted to offer. At that time, I was living in Virginia Beach and started learning about cottage food business or the cottage food laws in the state of Virginia. And and I had lived in Florida and I had worked in Miami, and I had lived in Nashville. I'd sort of worked all over the place, D.C., um, but we had settled in Virginia. And I don't remember how I heard about cottage food law, but started reading about how there was uh, this way that you could start a business from your home, and each state sort of has different laws on how to do that. But I thought that that would be a good way to start, especially because at that time, and still Virginia um, had a lot of resources and a lot of opportunity in which to to do that. So I think it was a combination of timing and the place I was at and being ready in terms of what my family was doing. I was supporting my husband as well, like through school before this. So he was finished with school. So I thought now is now is the time to start. And, and that's what I did. I started baking out of uh, my apartment in Virginia Beach. For those of you who haven't gone through the process, being certified for a cottage kitchen or under cottage food laws is not an easy process. The goal is to make sure that foods that are created from someone's home are going to be just as safe to be able to share with the public as it would from any commercial facility. So I just went through that process myself here in Pennsylvania. Not only was there a 16-page application to be able to (laughs) write out an excruciating detail about recipes and how the space would be set up to be safe, but also then the end of the process was having a home inspector come into the home and make sure that everything was set up appropriately. And this will be something that will need to take place at least on a a yearly basis for that inspector to come in and recertify the facility. Is that similar in Virginia? Exactly. Yes, it sounds very similar. It is a quite a long application process. It is, like you said, excruciating detail about every ingredient that's going to go in every recipe and exactly how you plan on preparing that recipe step by step. And the labeling requirements may vary from state to state, but in Virginia, very detailed labeling the inspection, the annual inspection of your kitchen or whatever space you are using, whatever rooms in your home you are using, someone from the Department of Agriculture comes in and and inspects the kitchen and sort of guides you on sanitation and things like that, which luckily I had worked in commercial kitchens so I sort of had a little bit of a head start on that, but I don't know if this has been your was your experience, Corey, but the inspectors that I've worked with over the years have been 
very helpful and open to, they're not there to bust you. You know, they were there to sort of, to help you and, and guide you and answer questions. And if there was something that you weren't sure about, they could sort of recommend to you, this is how you could change this. And once you change it, let us know. That's had sort of been my experience where they know that you are one person or, or you know, a family starting a small business and they're there to help you and give you as much, as many resources as possible. Yeah, that was definitely my experience as well, not only in my home, but also in my restaurants, that the inspectors are there to protect the public. They're there to protect mm-hmm. you as the business owner from the possibility of getting anyone sick, which is not good for you. It's not good for the business. And obviously, it's not good for the people who get sick. So it's absolutely a service and one that I took very seriously and wanted to make sure that I did everything the right way so that people who in the long run purchase my food can feel confident that they are purchasing something that is going to be as healthy, if not more so, than they would get in any other commercial facility. So it, it was a good experience, a lengthy experience, but one where the prize, yes. of course, at the end is that you then get to make food in your home, and which is something that so many of us love to do. So it's definitely worth it for people who are, are interested. Agreed. Absolutely. Jill, you have a company called Pastry Base, and I love the name. I kind of love the onomatopoetic rhythm to it. (laughs) But then you have Lily Bean, and Lily Bean seems to be your brand, Lily Bean by Pastry Base. So how did you come up with your name? And is Lily Bean one product line within your food family, or is it the sum total of your business? So Lily Bean uh, by Pastry Base is named for my grandmother, Lily. So she was my baking buddy growing up. Uh, She always had something going in the oven. She always had her white KitchenAid stand mixer on her counter, um, which I, uh, grandma, she's no longer with us, but I am blessed enough to have her KitchenAid stand mixer on my counter and I use it almost on a daily basis. And I use it in recipe testing and it works much better than my modern KitchenAid (laughs) mixer. And so, um, you know, she was a big inspiration for me before I went to culinary school and before I decided that I wanted to make a career out of this. But the best memories I have of childhood are of of baking with her, with Situ. She was just Arabic, her grandmother. So when I began my business baking out of my apartment in Virginia Beach, um, just basically custom cakes and pies and tarts and cookies and things like that, my business was pastry base. But my business evolved over time, as everyone's, I think, does in some way or another. But after about a year, um, I decided that a a few things happened. Uh, One, I started developing some food intolerances that I was dealing with personally in my own life. And so was having to sort of amend what I was eating and amend some of my recipes so that I could enjoy them um, so that they didn't have dairy and didn't have gluten. And then another thing that happened was I was just sort of looking at the hours that I was putting in, what I was creating, the revenue I was bringing in, and just the satisfaction that I was getting out of what I was doing. And I enjoyed what I was doing immensely, but I wanted to reach more people and I wanted to have a little bit better work-life balance. So I felt that my home was just sort of always 
overtaken by frosting and sprinkles everywhere. And um, (laughs) it was sort of, it was just, that doesn't sound bad, but it was, it was not quite the work-life balance that I wanted. A lot of times people, when you're not working out of a storefront, when you don't have a staff, sometimes boundaries are something that you have to be very aware of because friends and family and people that hear about you a lot of times think, oh, let me just ask her, like she can make this cake for me tomorrow. Or I need this, I need 10 tarts over the weekend. Something that probably a commercial bakery that has a storefront wouldn't be able to accommodate. And you say yes to that a lot because, you know, you want to please people and you want to do well in your business. And so it just wasn't a very healthy place that I was in. And I still felt that I was not doing as much as I could in terms of production. Uh, I was used to working in kitchens where we'd be pumping out hundreds of cupcakes and croissants and cakes. And I felt like I was working harder and not producing as much, not being able to sell as much as I wanted. I sort of shifted focus because of these reasons. And also a funny thing that happened was I was mailing cakes which is very difficult, especially in the summer, to family and friends who were ordering cakes. I was freezing them. I was shipping them. And I just sort of made a decision that, you know what, these family and friends, they could totally do this. If they had the tools, if they had just an easy way to make these cupcakes, it it would be so much easier than me doing this and freezing it and shipping to them. So I started sort of making little care packages for people and saying, okay, here's everything you need. I've blended all of the dry ingredients together. Here's some sprinkles. Here's some cupcake lines. You can do this. It's, it's, it's not as hard as you think. And with baking and pastries, there's sort of that, I think people are intimidated sometimes where they think I can't bake. It's so difficult. It's so time consuming. One little thing is off and everything is ruined. And it is different from other types of cooking where there are, there are, you know, chemical reactions involved where yes, sometimes things cannot turn out as you want them to. And that happens to all of us. But I just got a real kick out of helping people doing this themselves and teaching them that it is not as complicated as you think you can do this too. Is that the lily bean line then of the kind of the baking kits? Is that where that came about? It is. Yeah. So I actually stopped baking and developed a line of baking mixes where people can do this at home. And that's where my business has gone ever since from, from the beginning of 2017 to today. So Lily Bean by Pastry Base is a line of baking mixes and kits that are allergen free. So they are gluten free, they are vegan, no nuts, you know, all the top eight allergens are are missing from all of the baking mixes and they're dry mixes. So they're shelf stable cupcake mixes, frosting mixes, blondie mix, and then kits, which contain sort of like the care packages I was making for friends and family. They contain all of the tools and decorations, sprinkles that are dyed with fruits and veggies instead of chemicals, things that I was using in pastry base when I was baking for people. But Lily Bean by Pastry Base is sort of where the business uh, went to. And yes, you were asking your initial question was, is Lily Bean by Pastry Base just sort of one line of products in the business? Right now, it is the whole business. I do have sort of hopes that in the future, maybe I could do a line of um, baked, you know, shelf-stable products, maybe cookies, maybe cupcakes, 
that are already baked. And that would be sort of another part of the business. But um, I really enjoyed creating these baking mixes and watching people be able to bake for their families really quickly and easily at home and, and seeing them post the pictures of what they've created for their families. I really get a lot of enjoyment out of seeing that. That is so neat. Does this also mean that uh, Grandma Lily, who is uh, from the Lebanese tradition, may have also taught you how to bake some of the honey-based Lebanese sweets? I would love to see some mixes, obviously probably very difficult to do as gluten-free, but also uh, some of my favorite treats in the world. Situ was definitely not vegan or gluten-free, so we, we baked, yes, with a lot of a lot of butter and honey and, and things like that. But yes, maybe I do need to to work on some uh, some Lebanese pastry mixes. I'll, I, I'll keep you updated on that. I will be first in line. So thank you. <laughs> I do have some very bad news for you, though. There are some companies What's out that? there that stole your idea. They're actually they're <laughs> actually taking food and they're putting them in packages and having people make their own meals. So I hope you're getting oh, a commission Weird. from all those companies out there that are doing yeah. it. But, Obviously, you came upon a really important idea that has become so ubiquitous for people to receive products in the mail and then to make them themselves, which obviously inspires people to do more of their own cooking. But what's so neat about your packages, not only are they just exquisite, they're so beautiful and so inviting, but they really do appeal to everyone because even people who have allergies can enjoy them and people who don't have allergies can have healthy, quality food. Jill, how has that shifted your demand for your products? Are you seeing a different audience of people who purchase your products? Are you seeing a larger demand? Obviously, there is a big difference between people who order cakes through the mail in the summertime and people who order Mm -hmm. lily bean kits. Yes, it's definitely given me a much broader audience and it's enabled me to, to do the scale of production that I wanted to do. So as one person, I can only bake a certain amount of cakes in a day, right? And, let, and in, my, in my space at home without having, you know, renting kitchen space, without hiring staff. But here I can both have my home inspected and make these baking mixes and kits out of my home. And I can also, which I have done uh, in the past couple of years, work with local businesses and businesses elsewhere in the country called co-packers. And what they do is they take your recipes, you work with them to scale them to large batches and they can blend them and package them for you. So I do sort of a combination of creating them in my home still, doing smaller batches and putting the kits together, and then working with co-packers who are blending large batches for me. So it's enabled me to scale my business without having to rent or own kitchen space, or I do rent a small little bit of warehouse space, which is really affordable. And it's with an awesome group here in Richmond called Hatch Kitchen, which is sort of a collaborative of a bunch of different food businesses that share space. But it's been a much more affordable way for me to grow and a less risky way for me to grow. Jill, at what point did you think about a co-packer as a partner and as a way to both produce and distribute your products? And what would you recommend for others? At what scale should people be thinking about either um, moving away from home-based production or including a co-packer as part of the overall business development? That was probably one of the, the hardest things that I did in my business was 
one, deciding that I did want to work with a co-packer and then two, finding the right company to work with. I would say the demand and your level of sales will tell you when it's when it's time, when you can physically no longer produce what the demand calls for. You could certainly do it before then. Some people, you know, start off their businesses with a co-packer, but for me personally and for people looking to do things, we're talking a less risky way, starting your business from home. I think it's better to you know, see what the demand is first, you know, see how far you can grow it yourself and, and grow your audience sort of organically that way first. And then when it's time to, when you can no longer do it by yourself or when you can sort of forecast, you can see where the sales are going. And as you grow in terms of where your product is being sold as well. So at first I was just selling my product in farmer's markets here in Richmond and online. And I started my very first wholesale order to a retail store here in Richmond. It's a store called Elwood Thompson's. It's a local gourmet grocer that's been here for decades. And they're very supportive of local business. So I sort of gradually started wholesaling. And Once I started adding more and more storage to the portfolio, that's when I could sort of see, okay, I could forecast this product is selling in these stores. There are now stores sort of starting to approach me. The orders are becoming regular. So you can kind of see and, and forecast that when it's time to start outsourcing some of your production. Jill, at the point at which we become so successful and we should all be um, as lucky, uh, and obviously it's not luck, but we should all um, have that opportunity to be able to grow our businesses. One path is to hire others, to move into a commercial kitchen, to both maintain control of the production, maintain control of the business. Obviously, there's a different business structure and in, in profit considerations for doing it that way versus working with a co-packer. Why did you decide to go the co-packing route rather than grow it with employees locally? For me, a lot of that had to do with the regulations and laws and certifications that come with having an allergen-free product. So if I was just doing baking mix that, you know, didn't have, wasn't allergen-free, I honestly probably would have gone the route, the other route where I would have rented the space and hired the people able to do it in-house. But there's such a cost barrier to creating an allergen-free facility that meets all of the legal requirements so that I could put on my packaging that my product is gluten-free and allergen-free and feel confident about that. It's very cost prohibitive to, to do that. So it's it's not something that I have given up on and it's something that I would like to do someday in the future. But that was the barrier for me was that I didn't want to compromise on any of those types of certifications and things like that. And and it was very hard to find a co-packer who was doing that successfully that didn't require, you know, huge minimum orders of, you know, hundreds of thousands of pounds of, of product. Obviously, it resonates with me. Most of the products in my restaurants are gluten-free. We make an amazing uh, macaroni and cheese with gluten-free pasta that's largely rice-based. 
So I'm very familiar and very, very keen to make sure that you can avoid cross-contamination to protect our customers as well and make people feel comfortable eating our food. But you're right. It does create a completely different threshold for how you would set up your own space in your home, the scrutinization by inspectors, and probably insurance as well. The other thing that I think one needs to do, and you can verify, is that if you produce products with claims on them, such as gluten-free or vegan or soy-free, that is a point at which you have to get the Federal Food and Drug Administration involved rather than just state-level Department of Agriculture to engage with you and and make sure that you, in fact, are representing yourself appropriately. Is, Is that right? It is for, yes, there are certain claims that have certain requirements. So the FDA requires that if you're going to claim gluten-free product on your packaging, that there has to be less than two parts per million of gluten when the product is tested. So yes, so there, there are tests, food testing that you have to have done. And the other thing is the certification. No one is going to require you to sell a product that is certified by a third party, vegan or gluten-free or or organic, but consumers have a lot more confidence, especially those that have severe allergies or celiac disease, things like that. They're going to be much more likely to buy products that have third-party certifications as well. So that's something that we're we're still working on obtaining because again, there there's sort of large cost barrier there. But already having my products produced in a facility that has those certifications at least gives gives me that peace of mind. So Jill, it sounds as though you may have gone in a different direction had you not had this higher threshold and you may have considered working with team members, building your business out of your home or a local commercial facility for people who are not necessarily going down the route of having that higher threshold, who aren't claiming the kinds of things that are important in your products. How should they think about that question about growing with local employees versus a co-packer? I think that a lot of it has to do with your network of people locally. I am lucky and blessed enough that if I want to go that route in the future, and if I had wanted to go that route, I had sort of over the years of being in my business, met a lot of people in the local food industry. And that was just by sort of joining a group called Real Local RVA here in Richmond, local farmers and food makers, vending at the farmers markets, attending meetings um, with the Department of Agriculture, joining groups within the Department of Agriculture that feature specialty food. So like organizations and memberships and things like that. There's a lot of value in creating that family and that group of people around you because that's where you learn about opportunity and and collaborations, because I think that's so important when you're not a huge company with investors and you know have all these resources. We can pool our resources together and, and figure out ways to work together. The warehouse space that I rent that I mentioned earlier from a group called Hatch Kitchen, a collaborative of local food businesses. They have a huge commercial kitchen where dozens and dozens of local businesses work out of and where people can rent production space. They have places where people can rent storage space and they're opening a bottling facility now where people who make sauces and marinades and beverages can, can use that space to bottle their products. So 
I would say there's such a value in networking with other food makers or other businesses in your in your field and researching what local and state government agencies there are that you can, you know, join groups and and gain support from. For me, it's been the Department of Agriculture here in Virginia has lots of resources that can help small home-based businesses another group, the Virginia Economic Development Partnership. But these are things I had never heard of before. Right. But just a little bit of research can can show you that there, there are a lot of organizations that are there to help you with funding, with ideas, with networking. Just as a shameless plug, this podcast is one part of a larger effort, the Cottage Covered Cooperative, where we are trying to create that kind of networking for home-based producers writ large. Obviously, there are specialty areas of food production and artisan production, personal care products. There are a lot of different subfields, but we would love to be able to contribute to the opportunity for people who are involved in home-based and local businesses to be able to have the benefit of learning from others. So that's inspiring to know that it has worked so well for you and motivates me to continue to do these podcasts and also then grow the other parts of the cooperative. Jill, one of the things that having a co-packer also allows you to do is have a little bit more time that you would otherwise spend in production to do some other things. Looking at your website, there are some neat things that I want to point out. One is that you've done an incredible job with marketing, that you have been on TV news programs, that you have YouTube videos, that there are tutorials that you have created for people to use your kits. So you've really done so much to make your business well-rounded so inviting and so accessible to others. I wanted to commend you on that and just ask you about some of the decisions about how you spend your time and what you might recommend for others. Yeah, definitely. You're right. The Having a co-packer does free up a lot of time for other things, although I do like to stay very involved in creating my products from home as well, in addition to what the co-packer is doing. Just to double-checking recipes, just creating new, trying to create new flavors or come up with new products, it's given me a lot of time to be able to do that. And the marketing efforts, yes, as you said. And the other thing that has really helped with the growth of the business is being able to attend small and large local and national trade shows. Once you're at the point where you're confident in what your production levels are, whether you're doing it yourself or not, and no matter what those production levels are, there are some ways where you can grow your business and introduce your brand to retailers by attending trade shows. Now, these days, everything is virtual. I just did my first virtual, um, what's called the fancy food show last week. But there are local shows too. The state of Virginia has has one um, every other year um, where it's it's pretty affordable cost to get a booth at this show. And it's in like a convention center here in Richmond. And what happens is buyers from all over the state from various types of stores are invited to this show and they walk around and are introduced to locally made products. And so some of the buyers are from small farm stands or family owned gourmet markets or gift shops. And then some of the buyers are from Wegmans and Food Lion and and larger stores. And you don't have to be at the level of, you know, I'm ready to sell to big box stores yet, but that's okay. It's a way that all types of stores can start seeing your brand and noticing you. And the first show that I went to is actually in Atlanta. 
and it was a gift show. And I was very new and I had just sort of launched my products and had no idea even what these trade shows were. But I was encouraged by another local food maker who said, you know, you know, what do you, what have you have to lose? If you get orders, great. If, if someone wants an order that you're not ready to produce yet and you can't meet that level of production, then just say, I'm not ready for that yet. And then maybe next year you'll be ready, but they will have seen your product and will maybe have tasted it and been introduced to your brand. And it's sort of a great way to grow, to kind of see different trade shows in your area and then nationally that you can attend. And a lot of states have within their Department of Agriculture with or within other government agencies have funding to even help you attend those shows to, to help it be a little bit more affordable for you to go. So I've had a, a lot more time to participate in things like that, where I can introduce my brand and grow my brand that way. Jill, if I could envision where I would want a business to be in five years or 10 years, I would be lucky to be able to have the breadth and the depth and the quality of, of everything that you've done. The other thing, though, is that it's a little bit intimidating. There's just so many different ways that people can spend their time that you want to make sure as you're starting out that you can do the most efficient and effective things. So what advice would you give to somebody who's starting out about the best way to start a home-based food business? I would just say, you know, don't be afraid to make mistakes because you're going to. Everyone does. I've made plenty of them. But I think the best way to sort of protect yourself is not overextend yourself. Just sort of grow gradually in what you feel comfortable with. Get your network of supporters. And before you spend a lot of money and a lot of, of time, just see what where the interest lies. It's okay to start really small and make really small batches of product and try it out at a farmer's market. Give it to friends, get feedback. Um, I would say just don't be afraid to start small and see where the interest is because some of the projects or some of the products that I thought were going to be huge hits because I liked them or for whatever reason. And so I decided to spend a lot of money and, ma and make a ton of this product and it's going to be great. And I know it's going to sell. And then now I have all this inventory and it didn't sell quite as well as it did. And, and now, you know, there's expiration dates on this and so that's what I would say is just start small and see, see the people, your customers will tell you what they love and you'll start seeing what products are going to be the most popular. And it's not always what, what you think. Jill, how can people find out more about Lily Bean by Pastry Base? So they can go to pastrybase.com. They can look on social media, Instagram, Facebook, pastry base. They can find some of the Lily Bean by Pastry Base baking mixes if they have a wagons near them or if they have a, if they're in Virginia, they can find it at a the local makers section of the food lion stores or online and they can feel free to reach out to me. There's a contact form on the website that comes directly to me. And if anyone has any questions or wants any advice, I like I said, I benefited so much from talking to other people in my industry. So I would be more than happy to answer any questions that, that anyone would have of me as well. Thank you so much, Jill. As an homage to Grandma Lily, I would say shukran, shukran jaziran. Uh, and uh, we really Aww. appreciate it. This has been incredibly valuable. Thank you and, and best of luck as we approach this holiday season. Thank you. Too. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening today. 
This has been the Make It and Sell It podcast with Corey Hyman. Please subscribe, let us know what you think, and stay tuned for future episodes.